Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy with another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. And today we've got a special guest. It's an attorney, Andrew Legrand. Andrew Legrand is uh, the founder of Spera Law Group. And what makes him unique, not only the fact that he's from New Orleans and loves it, uh, moved back there after attending college in the University of Florida. So who leaves Florida? Nobody leaves Florida. This guy leaves Florida, right? So, but has mashed together technology and law and he bills in a very different way than most attorneys you're going to run into. He's looking to help new new business formation. So business owners looking to start new businesses and be able to make sure that they get their operating agreements and things structured uh, correctly from the jump. So Andrew, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate being here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So hopefully we can have a little fun and educate some people today on the things that they don't know. So, you know, um, let's talk a little bit about your business model, right? So became an attorney, University of Florida, decided to leave and go back to New Orleans, which you're from New Orleans. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit pre-call. I like New Orleans personally. I've had a lot of fun times there. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a hard place to leave. You know, Florida was fun. I was there with with Tebow and the basketball teams back to back. So it was a great time to be a student. But it was right after Katrina and there was definitely a sense of, you know, wanting to move back and and help people rebuild. Um, I graduated in 08 and Katrina was 05. So I was away for those three years and uh, definitely wanted to kind of like just help my friends and family that were kind of back there struggling and felt weird to kind of uh, not be back with them. So I went to law school in New Orleans and then realized that really one of the best ways to use a law degree to help kind of in that rebuild is, is just building an economy. And now it's switched out of you know, kind of a rebuilding to how do you create jobs and opportunities and, and just different things in the world of business. So uh, we've, for the past 10 years, I've focused my practice on helping business owners avoid stupid legal mistakes and, and help them actually grow their business and not be, you know, have the threat of lawsuits and litigation and, and business killing mistakes under them. Nice, nice. So look, from being somebody is, I'm, look, I'm, maybe I'm a finance person, but I consider myself a business person with finance licenses, right? So I just happen to understand how the ecosystem works. There's a lot of people that know how to make a widget, maybe sell a widget, but running the business of the widget is a whole different deal, right? Yeah. So, and I'm sure you've experienced that. So talk about the obstacles and challenges that a new business owner faces in the way that your firm being able to partner with them and help create that legal structure, that entity that helps them give them a higher probability of success. Sure. So, and it's not just new business owners either. Our ideal client is actually the business owners that are actually already established. Uh, those seven and eight figure companies that have in the past, you know, they've maybe grown. So we don't, uh, we have a program basically, we 
you talked about our pricing levels. I never wanted to get to the spot where we charge too much to exclude people because, you know, those seven and eight figure companies a lot of times started out as those mo- like really small business owners. Um, the problem with really small business owners, a lot of times they don't have cash, right? They're, they're bootstrapping it. So when they are trying to raise capital and they have people to actually raise capital from, uh, we can help them do that. Um, but a lot of times with the small, the just starting out business owners, it's pointing them in the right direction, trying to figure out where's your best bang for your buck. Uh, trying to start out with a really complex partnership arrangement when you're just trying to start a business usually isn't a good idea because it's expensive to set up. It's expensive to get out of, uh, not just in terms of, not just expensive in terms of money, but expensive in terms of time managing the relationship. So for those businesses just starting out, I think what we do is really kind of help them out, figure out what the practical aspect of the law is. They might want the operating agreement and the trademark and all these contracts, but they don't have the revenue yet to justify those legal protections. Mm-hmm. So it's helping the business owner figure out what legal protections do you need while you grow the business. And we can kind of constantly, you know, you don't just buy those legal things one time. They work together to grow, to grow with each other. Um, so when somebody's starting a business, it really is that how do we uh, help you spot what's important to you early on that fits within your usually pretty small budget. So the real ideal clients are the seven and eight figure businesses who have grown past the DIY stage and they're not quite at a spot where they need a full outside general counsel, but their only real options in the legal marketplace is to go and pay a lawyer $600 an hour. And the people that are running those seven and eight figure businesses are, I'm sure you work with them, kind of just normal people. Right? I'm not talking about the Coca-Colas and the, the utility companies and the big banks of the world. I'm talking about the engineering firms, the CPA firms, the retail locations with a couple, two or three successful stores, You know, the businesses that are still owned by one or two people who are still in the business. They've probably delegated. They're not working in the business all the time, but they're still a key part of it. And so we work with them and we say, hey, you could either pay this big regional law firm by the hour or you could pay us a flat monthly fee uh, that we negotiate and figure out what's in that scope. And that way you're not, you're not worried about ha- bullshitting with us on the phone. You're not worried about talking about the game last night. You're not worried about, hey, does this issue, does this issue hurt enough yet for me to call my lawyer? Um, it flips the script a little bit and allows us, actually requires us to be proactive and show value on a monthly basis. So that's really the, the two businesses we focus on or the two kind of big segments is how do we take those small businesses and basically move them up our pipeline to become the clients who, you know, we can actually make a living off of. Makes sense. Understood. Yeah. And that's a real issue with a small business owner is, you know, they've only got so many dollars they need to allocate. And it's like, yes, we want to look like Coca-Cola from a brand standpoint, but can we afford the logos and the letterhead and, you know, the cybersecurity that we need and, and all the legal documents structured in the right way and all that stuff. You're like, well, in a perfect world, yes, but maybe those dollars need to be allocated somewhere else until we grow into that per se. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes we tell clients like, look, this is, this is going to cost you more than you can afford. And maybe that money is better spent on marketing or, or something else along the lines that's actually going to help your business grow. I mean, basically the, the analogy I use is like a castle. You know, people don't put up walls around nothing. You put up walls around something that somebody wants. And so if you don't really have anything that somebody wants, you don't really need to protect it that much. So whereas if you have something that people want, you need better protection. 
So, you know, and those things need to kind of grow in concert together. If you spend all your money building walls, you, you never have any money to build something that somebody's actually going to want to come after. That's a, that's a great analogy. I've never heard that said before, but I really, I think that's very well put. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, okay, so you said we prefer to work with the businesses that are hitting seven and eight figures so that we can help them because now they've, and this ties into what you just said, they've built something valuable if they've got to seven to eight figures. Now the protection around it, building the wall of the castle makes a whole lot more sense from the, from the way that you view it. So are there any specific niches or industries or that you have uh, specific knowledge or specialization in helping any certain industries specifically? Or you did mention, I heard you say accounting and a couple of other things that you rattled off, but I didn't know if that was just tongue in cheek or, or that's a, you have a competitive advantage in that space, right? Yeah, no, I think the businesses we help the most are uh, primarily professional services firms. And I would say just generally fast growing businesses, you know, so I guess to say what that isn't, we're not great in the restaurant field. Restaurants tend to kind of have some legal needs when they start up, but not a whole lot of ongoing needs. Whereas if you're fast growing, you're, you're a spa opening multiple locations throughout the area. Uh, you're a retail business that's putting out new products and you need to protect your brand. Um, you're a business that's gone from, we have a few clients who are kind of like, accidentally millionaires, basically, uh, and kind of created a good marketing agency, but they don't know what they're doing or, or they know what they're doing in their business, but they don't understand the legal side of things. So when businesses are fast growing like that, we can really step in. And um, you mentioned earlier, the tech and the automation, we have uh, some proprietary software. It's nothing too complex, but something that we use to spot legal issues uh, and basically build our knowledge in uh, to a platform that says, hey, how many employees do you have? Okay, you have this many employees. Let's talk about all the issues that you might have with this many employees. Most business owners know that as you add employees, every state and federal law is different, but at 15, some laws kick in. At 50, others law, other laws kick in. At 100, other laws kick in. So just the question of how many employees do you have can start to trickle in. Okay, but you have 16 employees. We have to address this. Do you have this in place? Do you have this in place? Do you have this in place? And so it kind of creates a just a simple set of questions of asking the business where their business is. We can spit out the things they're supposed to have in place. So, and it's a great tool, but it's it really comes out of the subscription model. If we're billing a client by the hour, I would never be able to charge my clients to develop some tech tool uh, that they're not going to have. And it starts to become weird of how do I, do, do I charge you to walk you through the tool by the hour? Like that just never made sense to me. So what's really cool about the subscription model is that we get paid to build these systems that add value back into the membership. And I don't think we'd really be able to do that if we were charging, actually, if we're charging people by the hour, it wouldn't make sense to automate things. Uh, we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot. So that's how we're tying it all together. And those seven and eight figures are really just our ideal clients because they have a lot going on. They've got contracts. They're expanding into multiple countries. Uh, they're hiring quickly. They're signing leases in other locations. And so we're obviously able to charge more because we give more value. And you know that's really what is able to sustain us. Um, again, we like helping the small businesses, but you need a lot of small businesses to, to support a law firm. 
Sure. Totally understand. So you brought this up and I want to go back to it just for quickly because I, I love the way that you broke it down and I would, I am loosely familiar with what you talked about, but give me an example of something that changes when you have 15 employees, when you have 50 employees, when you have hundred employees, just one example for each one of them. So if you have 15 employees, uh, at least in Louisiana, you're, uh, and this, this changes by state. I think California, it's one, for instance. In Louisiana, you can't be sued for sexual harassment when you get, until you get to 15 employees, uh, which is really weird, but uh, I don't know. That is what it is. Uh, I don't make the policy. We just follow it, right? <laughs> so the point there, though, is that also at 15 employees, those lawsuits become something that you need to face. So you're, if you don't have employment practices, liability insurance that would cover that kind of risk, your risk is higher and you need to go buy that coverage. That's right. Um, so we're able to kind of spot those two things. Most lawyers are kind of, you know, they wait till the lawsuit comes and they say, Hey Matt, where's the insurance? And they say, I don't have it. And you say, okay, well that, that's going to suck. Right. So it's a good example of just how we added a little bit of value. If you have insurance and you get sued, that's great. That's the position we want you to be in. So it, it also kind of adds to the once you start getting to that point of 15 to 20 employees, a handbook becomes more important because the new employees are less likely to be managed by the original owner. When a business only has like four people, the likelihood that there's harassment and discrimination is a little bit lower because they're working with the founder, the owner. It's a tighter knit family like relationship. As the team grows and gets bigger, uh, the risk of it not having a, a handbook gets gets bigger because those employees are now they're entering more into a corporation like setup where they might not know the owner. Their relationship is with a manager, uh, not the owner. Uh, so we need that handbook to help guide the middle managers on how to treat the employees. Makes a lot of sense. So at fifty employees. Uh, at 50 people, you get into ACA requirements and having to issue health insurance. And so those are just at 25. There's, there's also a number there at the federal level for federal discrimination claims. So it's really just a way of you know, figuring out, hey, as you grow, how do I now ask you about that? Interesting. That's awesome. I love the specific, the concrete examples of as you walk through these new things become um, risks and or opportunities that you need to embrace, right? As the, as the business grows through it. So good problems to have as you grow, right? Right. Yeah. And it just, it's, it's also just a, a straight marker of how much help you need. You know, sure. uh, if you're doing estate planning, the estate planning you do for a, a billionaire is not the same estate planning you do for somebody who just graduated college, Right. Um, and the concepts are the same, but the way we judge how that that castle and wall theory is how much money do you have and how many employees do you have? That's sure. kind of more money, more problems, right? So it's two of the pretty objective measurements we can use to relate that risk back to the business. Because even though the startup and that eight-figure company need the same legal things, they don't need them to the same degree. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I did a podcast recently with an estate attorney and he said, the only state you do not want to die and go through the probate process is Louisiana. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny. Is he from Louisiana? He's not. I think he's from Connecticut, but he but he deliberately called out Louisiana when he was talking. Well, about what's it. funny is Louisiana has this, uh, you know, our French heritage, we're Napoleonic code, we're a civil law system. And basically what that means is that our law is, uh, first, based on the code created by the legislature, uh, whereas the rest of the country, every other state is um, their law is based on judge made law. So it comes from the judicial branch first. 
But at this point, every state has codes. Every state has judge-made uh, interpretation of those codes. Sure. So we're now all a mixed jurisdiction. And, and you mentioned that I get a lot of, actually, a lot of my clients are, and I'm in Louisiana, and they think they need to explain to me that Louisiana is this unique state. But in the world of business, um, Napoleon didn't have LLCs. Napoleon wasn't doing UCC claims. Napoleon didn't have corporations. So a lot of the law that I'm dealing with is actually fairly new. And uh, we get a lot of people who say, hey, I need trusts here in Louisiana. And I explained to most people that our, our, our succession process, our probate process is actually really easy. So most people don't realize that uh, I think a lot of the internet says you need a trust, which stems from actually California, where the probate process is actually really complex. And because half the country is there, the internet thinks that you have to have a trust for anyone. So I get a lot of clients who who come to us for the estate planning part of it and say, hey, I need a trust because the internet says I do. And when we really dive into it, they don't. So it is good, though, to your point. I, I do like that Louisiana has this kind of like mystical world where lawyers in Florida or Connecticut or Kansas or wherever the hell they are, like, that's like, you know, the the Lambo in the... Uh, the Lion King. It's like, don't go over there. That's the bad land. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. It's good for a, a business perspective that we're kind of protected. There's uh, wizards and sorcery over there. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's what people think. In practicality, I, I just don't see it. I mean, every state has their own unique laws and uh, our verbiage might be a little bit different. It's tomato, tomato. You say probate, I say succession, but it's the same thing. Somebody died. How do we get their assets to their heirs? Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. So you embrace technology, which is not, you know, look, everybody should be embracing technology in the new world, right? Like whether you're an attorney, a CPA, a finance person, a construction business, whatever it is, we should all be embracing technology. That's not the case with everybody because, you know, technology evolves and moves so fast. It's constantly learning a new iteration of something all the time. So, you know, we should be doing it, but I don't think everybody does. But I think an interesting thing that you said earlier is from a legal perspective, you guys embrace subscription and value planning over hourly billing. And I can tell you when my dad passed away 20 years ago and I was going through the probate process with my dad and I started getting invoices where they were billing me for every six minutes, I was like, talk fast, stop you know, talk really fast and get off the phone. So talk a little bit about how you guys made the decision and how you executed on it as a strategy. So, yeah, I mean, the decision really stems from kind of what you just said, the, the idea of talk fast. I think that would with a business owner, I would take that to a next step is almost just don't talk. Right. <laughs> so if you're a, if you're a business owner, that's, and you're trying to build a budget, I mean, these days, everything is kind of a fixed fee, right? You can kind of guess what your insurance is going to be. You know, your rent, your salaries kind of remain the same. Um, there's not many line items on a, on an income statement that have as much flexibility as a, as a legal line item would have. And so I wanted our cost to look a lot more like that, just make a lot more sense to the business owners. And I guess from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the problem I wanted to solve is a lot of people were coming to me and saying, hey, I've got this problem uh, and I need you to solve it. And I look at the problem. The problem is something that a lot of times could be fixed with just a little bit of legal advice on the front end. And they would come to us and I'd say, okay, this is, a, this is an expensive problem to solve. We're no longer charging for the, by the hour. But when we were, it would be, hey, you need to give me a retainer. I'm going to char- charge you by the hour to fix this. And they have the same reaction you just had is that they're going to build point ones and this, that's, and the others. And 
So I said, so I realized, so if I charge you a monthly fee and I get you to buy into the program, now you're encouraged to call me. And now you can say, hey, I just hired my 15th employee. Do I need to know anything? When we can have that conversation I had with you earlier about, hey, yeah, we need to check that you have this insurance. Whereas uh, if people are paying for something by the hour, every time they go to pay for it, they have to make a decision of, is this worth it? Mm -hmm. And unless things are on fire, it's not worth it. Right. Especially if it's more complicated and more complex, it may take more time to solve the problem. And it's you're like, that's a problem anyway. And now there's just all this expense that's going to accrue to try to work through the problem if it's not catastrophic. And basically what I'm hearing you say is with our subscription-based service, it lets people get out ahead of this. And we're not getting into those big problems because they're like, hey, I can call you earlier and ask those questions. We're never getting really jammed up in a bad situation because we're able to mitigate that along the way because they will reach out because it's not those six-minute increments. Right. And it, it creates the situation where I can take longer to interview the client and try to spot issues, right? So we might, we ha- this happens all the time where I'm having a conversation with a client and they mention something offhand and I say, wait, what did you just say? And we'll go over something and it's a legal issue that they didn't even realize was a legal issue. And because we're not charging by the hour, they're not sitting there saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And they're not wondering, you know, the, the idea of, well, did Andrew just ask me this question so he can charge me more? Right. I don't have that conflict of is Andrew just asking me these questions so he can make more money off of me? No, I'm asking these questions so I can actually protect you. And what happens is I'm able to say, hey, Matt, I found this. You know, let's make this small adjustment and and reduce this risk here. Well, now I look like a hero, whereas under the hourly rate model, you know, if, if I ask questions and I don't find anything, I look like a jerk. Right. So it allows me to get into get into details with clients without fear that they're going to think I'm trying to milk them when I'm not, I'm trying to spot those issues. Sure. Well, look, every business would like to have reoccurring revenue associated with it, right? And nobody likes those big, expensive capital outlays for the gotchas and the times things go wrong. So I think it's a great business model. I think the hard part is maybe the pivot getting there because people aren't used to that service being priced in that way. And I think that's, you know, creates a a little bit of a change. I think when they see it and they get it, they're like, well, wait a minute, maybe this is a a better way to do it. But at first they're like, why isn't everybody else doing? And I guess that's a good question. Why isn't everybody else doing this? This is better. Why isn't the rest of the legal community caught on? Uh, I'll answer that first thing you said first. You're absolutely right. Is that most people there? What is your hourly rate? Well, we don't charge by the hour. We have to explain it. Uh, But I will say that more and more people are, are getting it. Uh, they're coming to our website, they're seeing it, and they're contacting us, knowing it. We've actually got people who have sought us out and said, I was looking for a lawyer who was charging like this, and I want to hire you because of it. So why aren't most people doing it? Frankly, it's hard. From a practical standpoint, we accept the risk. When you pay a professional by the hour, the client bears absolutely 100% of the risk. Uh, that something gets complex, the professional charges more. Um, that just goes up. Whereas in the subscription model, we have to be clear about what the scope of work is and what's included in that and when we need to charge you more and we need to monitor that and we need to communicate that um, to scale it. We have to communicate that between the team. You know, So if it's, there's a difference between just one person, one professional with four or five clients 
And our team right now, we have 40 clients who are on one of these subscription plans. And so I can't be there monitoring the scope of work every time. So the challenge is making the scope of work clear to not just the client, but to our employees uh, so that they can say, hey, this person's outside the scope. We need to we need to request additional funds for this, you know, compared to the, the bigger law firms. Uh, the bigger law firms are now, you know, I'm talking about the lawyer, the law firms with 50 plus people, uh, their whole business model is based off the hourly rate. And so you really have to change the compensation scheme too, because uh, if you or I are working together in the hourly rate, it's, it's really easy to say, okay, Matt's $1,000 an, an hour, Andrew is 500 an hour. We multiply that by the time we send out the bill, the client gets it back and we can really easily attribute that revenue to the client. Uh, I think the challenge of why more people aren't doing this, especially on a team basis, is if we're working together and the client's paying us five grand a month, how do we attribute that revenue to us, mm-hmm. right? What value did you add that month? What value did I add? Uh, you mentioned earlier that sometimes, you, you know, you give a, we both do this. You give a client a few minutes worth of advice that's incredibly valuable, right? So is it really time-based, you know? Andrew did 60% of the work. Did he create 60% of the value? Not necessarily. So I think that's really the challenge is um, how do you manage the client's work and the scope and ensure that the team knows what's going on? And then how do you manage internally paying the professionals and making sure that they're all happy? So that's, I think that's kind of the big challenge is just the hourly rate is it's easier on the professional. Sure. Understood. You know, I've always found the scope of work thing to be a challenge when you have to limit scope of work, because it's like, if somebody brings me a problem, I have to use everything in my brain to solve the problem. How do I go, well, wait a minute, you're not paying for that part of my brain right now. (laughs) So I'm only going to use 60% of what I got to solve your problem, right? Like that's such a, it's almost a conflict in a way when, you know, somebody's paying for a certain level of, of work or, you know, what you're going to look at. And then, you know, what they need is really above that because then it puts us in that weird spot where we're like, well, I got to upsell you now because I I can't do what you need done by using the 60% of my brain that you're currently paying for. Right. Yeah. And the easy fix for that, that I've only recently realized is uh, you have to offer that at the beginning. So, you know, a lot of times we haven't done a good job of giving people options in the past, but we're now moving to offering people options. So if you come to me and you need help and I say, hey, Matt, here's the 100% solution, here's the 60% solution, and here's the 30% solution, and you choose the 60% solution, I don't feel bad. I offered you the 100% solution and you chose to not take it. That's right. Right. So by giving people options... Uh, it works really well because it helps them see, hey, what's the distinction between, you know, what's the low price one? What's the high price one? It lets them compare different things. But it also creates a, a way of pointing back when they, you know, pick the, the middle option and they want a service on the high option. You can come back and say, well, I offered you yet. You didn't, you didn't want to pay for it. Yeah. So that's the way we've figured out how to solve that problem is really always offer 100%. But then we also recognize that not every client wants to pay for 100%. And I'm fine offering that 60% option as long as the, the scope is also 60%. Sure. 
Sure. I've studied a little bit of um, the concept of choice architecture, right? So when you're laying out a menu for somebody to be able to select something, it's like fast food restaurants, right? Small, medium, and large. Most of their stuff is medium. People don't never want the small one and they don't always want the biggest one, but they pick in the middle. So, you know, by the way you're designing your, your offering, you're probably having a bunch of people fall in the middle. Create a super level and then you have a lot more people by the large if there's a super jumbo level up there. Right. right. Well, and, and then, you you know, you have the super level for the people that actually want it too. Right. Um, and then it also helps to create better expectations for the people on the medium level. Right. Because you know? they go, I didn't buy the full package. I know that there was more. It was explained to me and I didn't buy it. And now what I'm, the question that I need answered is in the super premium level and I didn't pony up for it. So there's an expectation you were told up front that, hey, you're going to have to, you know, if you want to be in the VIP, you got to pay for the VIP. Yeah, Exactly. Totally understood. Very cool. Very interesting. So what are, so COVID over the past year has been really an interesting time. It's changed the way I think a lot of us have looked at the world and we've seen businesses thrive and we've seen businesses die. So how has COVID or, you know, some of the business opportunities or obstacles that have spun out of COVID impacted your business and maybe some of your customers? Sure. So, um, so as part of that techie lawyer thing, we were, uh, we've been remote first for over 10 years. Uh, and what that means is remote first is all of our systems are designed to be run from a laptop, wherever that person might be. We're not fully remote because we're still based here in New Orleans and we still have an office. It's a class A space. It's a small space, but we have printers and scanners and a spot to meet clients and the more traditional things you would see in an office. But we just don't expect everyone that works here to go into the office every day. But at the same time, just for various reasons, the industry, we're not ready for it. And, and we like going to the office. So we're, we're not fully remote. So when that happened two years ago, we were in a pretty good position. I remember being on the phone with the team and I said, okay, well, um, not much is changing. <laughs> we were ready for that. And then in terms of our clients, you know, a lot of what we did was just interpreting a lot of the different laws that came out. Um, figuring out what, what's going on with the, the recent mask mandate and the, the 100 plus employees and the vaccination mandate and the PPP and the CARES Act. We did a whole lot of webinars on trying to interpret that and helping people um, manage all that and figure out what, what applied to them and what didn't apply to them. So it was a lot of just one-on-one interpretation and counseling. Um, but you know, once we got, it's a good example where the hourly rate also sucks because once we got good at it, I was able to really quickly meet with a client and give them the answer, right? And so it didn't make sense that the first client that came through would pay me, you know, an hour to literally read an act of Congress. You know, you, one client pays me by the hour to read an act of Congress and then every other client after that, gets the benefit of me having already read that, that doesn't make sense to me. So, I mean, a lot of our clients were really able to survive COVID uh, fairly well. Um, we had a few kind of startups that, that really struggled with it. And the businesses we saw that really struggled, it, it seemed to be they weren't really businesses to begin with. Uh, and what I mean by that is they, they didn't have systems, they didn't have processes, they didn't have vision, they didn't have, they didn't have values, they didn't have uh, a lot of those written things that I think actually makes a business that were very heavily dependent uh, on the owner and maybe a few key employees. And when you throw in all the stress associated with that, you could really see that the businesses have been built on just, you know, not secret, but good business principles, uh, things like the e-myth, they were able to survive really easy. The businesses that were kind of houses of cards in the first place were houses of cards. Yeah. 
How hard is it? I've read the E-Myth, the series there, so I understand absolutely. And for those that haven't listened, it's the entrepreneurial myth. It's, you know, how do we take a business and have the business work for us instead of us work for the business through systems and processes, right? right. So, you know, how do you, I'm based on the fact that you referenced that, I'm under the assumption that as you're working with a new business, you're like, hey, you know, uh, there's a better way to do this where you get this thing. And I'm sure you have to introduce those concepts into that. So there's some, some coaching that probably comes from there on helping these people grow their business from a couple of people with a product and an idea maybe to into something that is a business. Yeah, that, it's a, you're, you're spot on. It is a lot of coaching, but it's not just coaching, it's legal prevention. I mean, I, it's hard to quantify this, but just in my experience, I, I can say that if you have a, the, the best example is hiring. If you follow the e-myth and you have good systems and processes for hiring uh, and you have a written down, hey, how do we, what's the job application look like? What's the interview process look like? What's the offer process look like? The likelihood that you have a better hire is going to be higher than the business that says, now accepting application, send me your resume and I'll hire whoever comes in the door. And if you have a better hire, the likelihood that you're eventually hit with an employment lawsuit is in theory lower. So hiring is just a really easy example there. And it also goes into the the cost of training and retention and that sort of thing. But one of our kind of core tenets is that good business practices actually result in lower legal liability. And there's legal liability that we can't really stop. I mean, that's mostly covered by insurance. But a lot of the legal thing, I can't stop a slip and fall. Um, That's going to happen from time to time. I can't stop a car accident. That's going to happen from time to time. But can we uh, put processes in place that make you run the business better, that help you uh, prevent contract disputes? Yeah, for sure. So our, our theory is that a better run business just gets the benefit of less legal liability just simply due to the fact that it's a better run business. Sure. Understood. So that you made me think of something. Um, The world is struggling for qualified human capital right now. And so now you're talking about putting a more stringent hiring process. We need people, period. And you're like, no, we need good people. Like that's an incongruency for many people because they're like, I'll just take a butt in the seat right now. But clearly we know that long term, that's not the solution to it, even though in the short term it might be. So how have you seen your businesses struggle with or um, find an opportunity in finding the right people in, in a difficult time to find good people? Well, that's also kind of goes back to how well the business is run. You know, I think part of the human capital thing is, uh, is people want more. They don't want just, uh, there's a great book. It's called Drive by Pink, uh, Daniel, David Pink or Daniel Pink. Uh, I think it's Daniel. Um, but he talks a lot about that. And he's a, he's a trained scientist, I believe a psychologist. Uh, and he talks a lot about the idea that it's not just salary anymore that people want. Um, they want to work for a company whose mission they care about. Uh, they want to run, they want to work for a well-run company. They want um, time off. They want benefits, but it's always not just what is the salary or what is the total comp plan? It's, there's more wants there. And I think that's happening now more than ever. And so to your point, I think the better run company, you know, are, are you going to apply for a job posting that says, Hey, help wanted apply within or are you going to apply for a job posting that says, hey, my name is Matt Chanty, and this is uh, Tech Alpha 6, and this is the company, and this is our core values, and this is what I'm going to want you to do. And this, So by building up that hiring process and speak, it's marketing, right? If you can speak to the right person, 
you can kind of get the chaff to not apply and you're going to speak to the right person that says, man, I read that. And that sounds like a really great job, you know, and I can't really imagine people look at the, the lazy job postings and say, yeah, that looks like a great place to work. Well, marketing is supposed to do two things, right? Attract your ideal person and repel somebody that's not at the same time if it doesn't right. well, right? So I think the problem with that is, you know, what I've learned in my lifetime is that the good product or the good service doesn't always win. It can be a mediocre product with amazing marketing, right? It's like the pet rock. How did the pet rock sell millions of dollars of it? It's zero utility whatsoever, right? So I think today, for example, of somebody that maybe was a good copywriter, good at positioning what their what their human capital needs were in their business, they might attract some of the best employees ultimately, but the job not actually be consistent with the way the job was marketed in the first place, right? For example, I know um, I know of a graduate program right now that at a university that is marketed as a sales program. They're taking students that have undergrads in finance, insurance, and real estate and giving them an MBA in sales, right? With a concentration in sales, which is good. Everybody needs to know how to sell, right? The problem is the program is sponsored by a financial services company that is notorious for a reputable brand, but they're, they chew employees up and they turn them over like nobody's business, right? And oh. the kids don't know that until they're in the program. They're like, why would the university let this big company sponsor this if the job is so hard when we get there, you know? Um, and so it's, uh, they're struggling and it shouldn't struggle, but it is because of, you know, this company's brand image attracts people, but then the way they utilize those people when they're there, they chew them up, you know? Um like even a new attorney, if they throw you in a new firm and they're like, hey, you're you're basically commission only after the first year when you figure this whole deal out, go find all your own clients. You're like, wait a minute, that's <laughs> I barely know how to be an attorney. How am I going to find my own clients? Right? Yeah, I'd be interested to see a chart of like, I don't know how you objectively define a well-run business, but I'd imagine that if you had one, you would see that the better run businesses are having less problems finding better employees. And better run just has everything to do with, are you working with a lawyer on a regular basis? Is the business owner, you know, not taking money out and paying for personal expenses? Uh, are they insured in the right way? I mean, just all those different things um, go into it. And so uh, it's definitely, you know, I just feel like there's, there is a lack of uh, a lot of people out there and that's going to be a problem, whether you're a good business or a bad business. And I think there's a lot of growth going on too. So people are trying to, trying to scale that growth up. But in general, again, it's like, as long as you can focus on running your business better, it seems to me that those people are having a lot less problems finding people to work for them. Then, I mean, we have a couple of clients who I sometimes question their, their hiring practices. And it doesn't surprise me when people quit. I'm like, yeah, I would quit that job too. And so that's sometimes where the coaching comes in. You know, that's not an easy uh, conversation with the client to say, hey, Matt, you know, I think you're kind of being a jerk here and you're wondering why people aren't lasting long. And, you know, we're multiple people have not lasted long. So the common thread here is you. And that's not an easy thing to bring up. And I'm doing it from the guise of I want your business to be more valuable. So I want less turnover. And I also don't want you to have any employment litigation. So, you know, if you're not paying me to give you that bad news, what are you paying me for? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So with that being said, and you being a tech person, 
right? How much is tech replacing some of the headcount associated with businesses there? Are you seeing a lot of adoption with your business owners leveraging as much technology as possible to have to maybe ease the burden of finding high quality talent? Yeah, maybe not so much in the, in the finding the high quality talent, but oh, sorry, yeah, easing the burden of finding the high quality talent. Uh, I think so. You know, I still think there's a lot of opportunity for, for more and more tech and automation. I mean, there's never really, uh, I can't imagine many businesses are fully automated yet. Um, I was meeting with a client yesterday, actually, that's a, uh, they're software developers. So they were maybe tooting their own horn, but it's kind of interesting anecdote. And they said that they had a client who, they were really proud because they went into the client software. They had old software. They updated the software. They modernized it. And the client was able to double the revenue with the same number of employees. And they attributed it to the fact that the employees could produce significantly more with the number of people they had. Uh, and I mean, our business is kind of the same. You know, We're right around about 40 members right now. Uh, we call our clients members when they're part of the membership. And there's a lot of automations going out every month. Um, you know, just little small touch points of, hey, you're, it's your, the anniversary of your entity. So you got to file an annual report. Uh, hey, your insurance is expiring this month. Remember, you've got to renew your insurance. It's a lot of just little small things like that that are automated on our end now that if we had to have a human do it, would take up a tremendous amount of human capital. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Like it's, uh, I think it's getting there and getting started on that process. But once you've said, okay, we're going to figure this out, we're going to use technology, we're going to leverage it. I think it can make a, you know, honestly, what I think it does too, is I don't know if it gets necessarily gets rid of jobs. Um, because the, the way I explain it to my staff is I'm not trying to automate you out of a job. I'm sure. trying to automate you out of the, you know, what, what, what things get automated. They're the routine mundane things that a computer can do. A computer can do, you know, if it's, if it's April 20th uh, and it's Matt's birthday, send him a happy birthday message, yeah. right? That's like an automated thing. But figuring out, uh, we can't automate yet. What is Matt like? You know, is Matt a Bucks fan or is he a Rays fan? How do I send him a gift? Does he like beer or wine? You know, so it, the idea there is we can automate kind of the reminder, but that allows a human to step up and figure out, well, what does that mean? What kind of gift do I send this person for their birthday? Rather than just being worried about when is their birthday, how do I recognize that for them? Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, because I have people send me stuff all the time and I open it up. I'm like, who would send me this? What is it? Why do I get this? Well, somebody should have asked me. They should have either saved the money and sent nothing or they should have asked me what I wanted that was comparable and sent me that, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's a silly example, but I mean, it's, it's all across the board. It's, you know, how do you, I, I'm freeing you as a human to do things that take thought and cognitive ability and aren't something that I can program a computer to do. That doesn't mean I'm taking you out of a job. That means I'm freeing you up to do more and higher value work. Absolutely. Well, you're leveraging the human capital in the equation because the right. human capital is going to use the automation, the technology to do more more efficiently, right? So, right. you know, eventually I think we can all see a time when fast food restaurants have one or two humans running around in them and a bunch of machines making the burgers and the fries and all this stuff. I think we can see that coming, right? But machines jam up every once in a while or somebody needs to hit the reset button on it or whatever, right? So if there's not a human that knows when and how to hit the reset button at the right time to make it work, then, we, then we've got issues. So I, I think that's a part of it. Yeah. So the people that are freed up out of the fast food restaurant, they'll be able to go work in the, the Burn Steakhouse, the, the high-end restaurants in the French Quarter that are producing the, the really good food, right? It's a, kind of the same ideas. I'm going to free you up to create, go create something that's a higher value. 
you know, uh, somebody might pay the five bucks for the, for the Big Mac, but the Burns burger is going to be like, what, 30 bucks or something like that. Right. Because it's, yeah. and it's, things are chopped by hand, but it's, it's the same idea. It's just the machines can replace that low value work, but that just means that the humans can do the higher value work. That's it. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. And I think humans today, it's one thing to be compensated. It's another thing to be rewarded, you know, emotionally or intellectually for a job well done. I, I think part of the problem we're having in our country today is a lot of people don't want to do what seemed to be just a lower end, more menial task, right? Everybody is trying to, and I think that's creating a, we don't have the factory workers. We don't have the assembly line workers and stuff like we had back in the day. Even if those jobs exist, I don't think people really want them. They don't feel like there's any sizzle to that per se or whatever. The the pension and the gold watch after 30 years and the, you know, and the union isn't enough to attract somebody to want to take that job almost today. It's just different. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, Pink's book is about 10 years old, but it, it's worth reading. It's a book I read as a young lawyer and it's really been into like, okay, how do I create a law firm where people want to work? And, you know, we're only a team of four right now, but the three people that work here, every time we survey them, we always get higher marks. And so that's a, you know, a good sign. Four, but mighty. Four, but mighty. <laughs> so do you guys use any outsource in your business? Do that's kind of a thing that's, you know, are you outsourcing any type of services with anybody else and leveraging their strengths? Yeah, we, uh, we use an outsource receptionist, you know, that's a good, easy, I don't need a whole lot there. I uh, just need somebody, a human to answer the phone. I think it's worth it to, to project that, you know, we're, we're remote first and we're small, but I want to project that, that image that we're, we can compete with the big regional law firms. We're not, not trying to meet you at the coffee shop, right? Uh, not the cheap lawyer. We're the the more reasonable lawyer. So working with a receptionist, you know, I, we pay for a lot of, I don't know if it's outsourcing, but ancillary software. So we pay for, uh, you might be familiar with Wealth Council, for instance, I am. Uh, planner. We pay for Wealth Council. We have a very high value LexisNexis subscription. We've got a couple other, I invest in coaching in myself. So we are outsourcing and we spend a lot of money on paying outside people to kind of help us do just various things. And really it kind of comes down to, do I need this person to be coached and well-versed in our system? If not, then we can outsource it. Uh, If they're touching clients and they need to be able to manage, you know, a few different clients at a time, then that's probably way more of a, of an employee. So, you know, even wealth council, it's, I'm paying a high premium, but that means that somebody's drafting some documents for us, right? right? And now we have automation and now I can create an operating agreement in two hours that used to take me 10. And so we pay a premium for that, but at the same time, I'm saving all that time. It's a lot of time and time is uh, time is money, right? You know, so, I mean, that's- Somewhat. Dependent, don't ever YouTube the concept is time money because there's a bunch of crazy YouTube videos on is time money because they convert it into other things and then convert it back to money and not of them all of them. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. But funny nonetheless, right? So with where we've been and where we're going, do you see any um, any real headwinds to what's going on or any new opportunities that are coming in your business based on political changes or, you know, how businesses have evolved over the past few years? Where's What's the next step for the small but mighty firm? You know, I see in New Orleans here, I won't name names, but there's been a few decades old law firms that have folded and they're, they're old or, or they've, they've merged into one another. And they're the more traditional, we're going to get a big retainer, bill you by the hour, 
um, expect our associates to come in and work from the office downtown every day. Uh, you know, I've got this collared shirt on right now, but I'm, I'm more of a, I'm going to wear a t-shirt and shorts at home and not necessarily look professional all day, every day. And so I think that business model of old of, hey, put on a suit and tie and come downtown and build the clients by the hour for the butts that you, for the time that you're actually here, I'm starting to see the cracks in that system and can see that A, the people don't want to work there and B, the clients don't want to pay for that. Now, it's still a necessary evil and there's still a lot of uh, clients they've had for those decades that are still with them out of loyalty in the sense that those professionals do know and understand the business. And those are good professionals. I'm not talking about their quality of service. I'm talking about how they deliver the service. And so I think as more, uh, as more millennials take over businesses from the boomers, they're not going to want that hourly rate. They're going to expect a firm to be, to use just small software tools, you know, to use, to use scheduling or not. You know, I, I get annoyed when I try to go work with a professional and I don't have a freaking calendar scheduling tool, right? Mm-hmm. Like just let me freaking schedule time make this easy. I don't want to play the back and forth game with you anymore. So I think as the younger crowd takes over, they're going to be looking for forward thinking firms that are disruptors that aren't paying by the hour. And I think the professionals too, those, those professionals who are younger now are going to want to get out of that system of going downtown and charging by the hour and looking forward to that. So, you know, just in those mergers and acquisitions and the, the shutdowns of some, some pretty big brands, at least here in the city, at least in the legal community, I'm starting to see, well, maybe that wasn't you know, working the best or it wasn't, that tells me that something wasn't working correctly. And so I, I definitely think that, you know, we're, uh, we're not where we want to be yet, but I'm confident that we're on the cutting edge and we're positioning ourselves to be that firm in the future that in, you know, 20 years will be uh, dozens of people and we'll have a much bigger profile and we'll, we'll be where some of those firms were in their own time. Huh. Look, Nothing is perpetual, right? You probably know the research on family and closely held businesses don't typically survive the third and fourth generation. They start to crumble, right? And I tell people all the time, I say, you know, if you look back at the S&P 500 or the largest 100 or 500 companies 100 years ago that had the biggest brands with the most money and the ability to attract the most talent, how many of those on a percentage basis were existed 100 years later, right? And it's like less than 20%. So things change, Right. right. Things change. And so, you know, we're different, we're evolving, and and you got to embrace the technology and you got to embrace the change and, and the cultural change, the way people want to do business, right? So, uh, right. yeah, I still, I live in Florida and it freaks me out when people show up in full suits and stuff all the time in the middle of summer to go to stuff. I'm like, who does this? It's Florida. Like, look, what are you thinking? <laughs> I, it's about the same latitude as Gainesville. So we're not, uh, we're not quite as hot as you guys down there in Tampa, but we're, we're up there too. So. Yeah, totally understand. Well, hey, we've about run out of time today. Uh, Andrew, any closing thoughts? Anything you want to leave? Tell everybody on on today how they find you. Sure. Um, you can check us out on all the social media. We're on Instagram. We've got a great YouTube channel with a lot of good information. Find us at sparalaw.com and, and find all our social media from there. Um, people rave about our newsletters. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, go to sparalaw.com slash newsletter. I, I still custom, uh, I dictate it and it gets transcribed and then goes and, you know, I They've automated the process to an extent, but it's still content coming directly from me. And uh, people seem to really enjoy that. And, um, you know, I guess check out those books, E-Myth, Pink by Pink, Drive by Pink. I think we'll show, you know, hey, this is how you're supposed to run a business. And I think if business owners really buy into that idea of the more I invest in the business and my systems, the lower I can lessen my legal liability, I think is a really great concept and add value to the business. 
I think it makes a lot of sense. I agree. And so be a learner, read good topics. I'm going to, I wrote down those books. I've already read the E-Myth. I'm definitely, Drive by Pink, never heard of that one. Definitely got it written down. Going to, going to consume that. So I appreciate you sharing the book idea there. Andrew, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for sharing the insights. Everybody, thanks uh, once again. This was another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast with Matt Chancy. And I uh, hope you learned something fun today. And uh, reach out, sign up for that newsletter list because there's gold nuggets on there. And we're going to go from there. But Andrew, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, be well. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 